It's so important for us to share our experiences as so many go into it unprepared as we did. When we share our stories, we educate others. Hi, I'm Bobby, a certified caregiving consultant and educator. I work one-on-one -on -one with family caregivers to help them learn how to respond to dementia behaviors that are often confusing and sometimes aggressive. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and certified music therapist, and I also speak at caregiver conferences. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia. Here, our focus is on the caregiver. We offer our practical insights and share some emotional support. And hopefully we'll share a laugh or two because we all know laughter is the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. Oh, no. no I won't forget your wine, sweetheart. I do appreciate it. <laughs> You know, after my father passed away, you felt compelled to write your first caregiving book about the seven-year journey of taking care of him. Absolutely. And at that time, people were asking, will somebody please write a book that tells what it's really like? And it's so important for us to share our experiences, as so many go into it unprepared as we did. When we share our stories, we educate others. And that brings us to today's guest, who is a digital and television news magazine producer whose work has always been about amplifying voices to reach to a wider audience. In essence, telling stories that help us better understand ourselves and others. He has produced a short documentary about the impact of dementia on his parents called Lousy, Love in the Time of Dementia. We are pleased to welcome Frank Silverstein, Frank, so much for joining us today, and we were eager to hear your story about your parents and what brought you to make the documentary. Sure. Well, I'm so happy to be here, and um, I really love your guys' attitude of telling it like it is, um, because I think that so much of what one hears about dementia is either sugar-coated or non-existent. So my parents were probably in their late 80s. My father was in his mid-80s, I guess, and my mother was uh, in her late 70s when they both began to exhibit signs of having dementia. And like many people, my brother and I kind of overlooked a lot of their problems. And then one day, my wife and I were having lunch with my parents in their house, and my mother looked me and my wife in the eye and said, you need to leave the house right now. And um, I wasn't used to my parents saying that to me. And my father <laughs> said, yes, it's time for you to go. You have to go. And so we just walked out of the house. And uh, we went and had coffee in a neighborhood coffee shop and took an hour or so to wander around town came back and my mother was beside herself. Um, what happened to you? Where did you go? We were so worried about you. And I thought that was so weird and so strange that I took out my cell phone and being a TV journalist, I was thought I got to, I have to document this. I don't know what it is, but I have to document it. And then we began to talk and it became clear that they did not recognize who we were. They had thought we were somehow strangers that had wandered into their house, and they did not like us being there. 
Um, and then I was able to help them understand that that was what had happened. And they both were really upset because that was not something they said, I can't believe we didn't recognize you. That's such a terrible thing. And that was kind of the beginning of um, the making of the film and really the beginning of my brother and I saying, we need to figure out how to help mom and dad because they're really not able to function so well. So then uh, over the course of time, uh, my brother was trying to help them be independent. And so he would set up these remote control things so that he could change the TV set for them from his home two and a half hours away. Um, We made sure that my dad wasn't driving anymore. And um, my mom at that point really wasn't that comfortable driving. So it wasn't so much of an issue. We got aides to come and watch them for a few hours a day. And as things became less and less, uh, as they became less and less able to take care of themselves, uh, it became clear they had to move into move out of where they were. My brother announced they're moving in with me. That, and I said, you know, that's a big commitment. And he said, I know that's who we are. That's what we do. We are taking care of mom and dad. Um, and I realized that that was not something that I was in a position to be able to do for lots of reasons. Um, and so I said, okay, Gordon, that's my brother. Uh, you do that and I will do whatever I can to support you in what you need to do. And so I made it my business to be his helper and to do whatever I could to make things easier for him taking that responsibility. You went through a whole host of behaviors that, you know, when you first mentioned the incident where your parents didn't recognize you, but when you came back in, they did. It's interesting to me that they believed you what happened. And as you began to describe the progression, it seemed, now this may not be true, that they agreed with what you and your brother were telling them all along, that your dad wasn't driving anymore, that he was setting things up so he could do things like change the channel on the TV. I would think that maybe somebody with dementia and and somebody outside of their house was manipulating things would, would be very disturbing. But it seems as if your parents were very compliant. Is that, is that the case? <laughs> um, they, so in, in my, you know, my experience with dementia is that it is not a single level experience that right. um, you, you go in and out of it. And um, there were times when they were, um, completely not compliant. They were completely hostile and aggressive and unpleasant. Um, And then other times when they totally got where they were, um, that shifted over time and they became less and less uh, able to exactly recognize things. But even toward the very end, there were times when they, you know, they completely understood what was going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, My dad, for instance, one of the things he loved to do at the end was to get a hot shave, Hmm. um, which he never, he's a depression baby and he would never in a million years have spent the money at a barbershop to get a shave. And I had to lie to him that how much it cost because I knew he would never allow me to, to take him. Uh, but he did love it that, you know, you get this hot 
steamy stuff mm-hmm. on your face. And the barber was just the nicest guy. And it was one of the few things at the end of his life that he was able to kind of really enjoy fully. Um, but when he was in that moment, he was, he knew he was in the barbershop. He knew that this was a great barber and he loved this guy. And by the end, he was like, we got to give him a bigger tip. And, and in the end, he, I was able to tell him how much it cost and he was happy to pay it because he just felt like this guy was a wonderful person and it was a wonderful experience. And what a wonderful video clip on your website. I saw that. And your dad just <laughs> looked so in the moment that, uh, you know, it, it was amazing that you were, um, and, and God bless you because you were able to give him that five minutes, that eight minutes, that 10 minutes. And I'll tell you something hilarious is that it was a, a local uh, barbershop. It was not a fancy barbershop. And on Saturdays, there'd be like kids from the football team lined up out the door. And the first time we did it, he and I had no idea how those hot shaves work. But at the end of the hot shave, they take an ice cold towel and they put it on your face. And Dad had no idea that was going to happen. And so he was sitting in the chair and loving every moment of it. And then this ice cold thing came on his face and he shrieked. And he's like, oh, and all the football players whipped their heads around. They stopped talking. And it was like Harry met Sally. They're like, we want what he's having. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Now, um, one of the things, and I think I read it on your website, that you gathered all these clips and, and took all these snippets in time. And I know with Bobby, it took her a couple of years to actually sit down and relive everything and put everything down into the into her book, Confessions of an Imperfect Caregiver. And I understand you had the same an emotional roller coaster doing the clips. Mm-hmm. It was horrible. And I'm a TV I, you know, grew up in ABC News and I covered 9-11 and I've been through endless crises and I can I know how to shut down my emotions and just get the job done. Looking at that footage, when I, fir- I first decided, okay, it's time, I have enough stuff, and I started playing it, and I think I watched for f- two minutes, and I was literally crying tears. Um, and it took me a period of, I mean, it was partly because it was COVID, and so I had a lot of time that I could do it, and I was also determined but it took me a couple of weeks to even screen all that stuff. And it was just horrible um, to relive each of those moments. Eventually though, you see it enough times and you begin to, my professional self kicked in and it's like, oh, there's a good sound bite. Oh, the audio is terrible here or the lighting is good here. And I began to kind of classify things the way that one does, but it was really not an easy task. For sure. Now, you were involved with caring for both of your parents pretty much at the same time. Dealing with one is, you know, it takes everything that you've got. But having two, did you find that they banded together or? (laughs) Oh, it was crazy. So my father and mother were very, very close to each other their whole lives. They were their best friends. They traveled together. It was them against the world. They would go dancing. They would host dinner parties. They were like a total team, and they loved, loved, loved each other. Um, 
as the dementia kicked in, they began to have difficulty recognizing who each other were. And so sometimes my father thought that my mother was his mother because Mm -hmm. he married a beautiful 20-year-old and this white-haired old lady that he was with was clearly not his wife. Exactly. Um, and um, and so th- they they couldn't sleep in the same room together anymore because they would wake each other up and um, their schedules were all crazy. But if if they and sometimes they'd be on each other's neck, you know, they'd they'd be you know you're they would complain to each other about stuff. But then I would come in and I'd say, okay, Dad, it's time for your pills, and he would say, I'm not taking the pills today. And my mother would jump in and she'd say, if he doesn't want to take his pills, Mm. he doesn't have to take his pills and you lay off him. (laughs) And it would be the same way with my dad. I mean, they suddenly he would hear something and I'd be saying, mom, you got to go. We're going to give you, we're going to wash you up and freshen you up. And she'd say, no, I don't want to. And then he would jump in. And so, uh, or they would both need to use the bathroom at the same time. And you'd have to figure out how to like <laughs> manipulate that. So there were, it was not all, it was a, it was really, really difficult. You know, sometimes, well, we physically change, our voices don't change a great deal. So maybe there was something in that connection when they were hear, hearing their loved one's voice, then they recognized that person and, and jumped in to, to, to defend him or her. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, when they when they died, they died within eight days of each other. Wow. Um, and the doctors had thought my mother would live another six months, and they thought my father could easily live another year at the time that my mother died. And so they were in reasonably, you know, given their age and everything, in not terrible, in reasonably good health. But and we were not sure that my father knew that it was my mother that had died. And we actually didn't tell him. And we didn't take him to the funeral because it was a three-hour drive and he was incontinent. And he was, I mean, there were lots of reasons that it was in, infeasible. So we never told him that mom died and we never took him to the funeral. And yet he had to have known at some level because as soon as we came back from my mother's funeral, he kind of stopped eating, and he kind of just shut down. Yeah, he felt her, her her essence wasn't there anymore. Yeah, I mean, he knew. Um, he knew, and so that there's that that connection. I don't, you know, I don't know what that connection is, but it was very, very powerful. Frank, one of the things that struck me, and you know, the the name of the documentary is Lousy. Love in the time of dementia. Yep. And I have to ask you about the word lousy because I don't put cognitively lousy and love <laughs> at the same time. So I gotta ask you about So lousy. the title the title comes from my mother's own words. She was in the hospital, and it's actually in the film. She was in the hospital for a fairly ordinary thing. It's called diverticulitis, and it's not mm-hmm. it's something that's treatable and understandable. And um, she didn't really understand why she was there or what was going on. And um, at one point, she said, okay, I'm ready to go home now. And I said to her, well, we can't go home till the 
hospital allows you to go home. And she got really mad. She's like, you could take me home if you wanted to. And I'd say, mom, how are you feeling? And she said, lousy. And it was just like, it summed up for me her furor at her own situation, her anger at the world around her, and her awareness at some level of her situation as being a really not the situation she wanted for herself. She felt lousy. It was a lousy situation. So that was where that title came from. Um, the problem I discovered as I began to show the film at festivals and things is that I think there's a little bit of a PC issue in the world where people like to have things have a, either a happy ending or some sort of a positive outcome from a negative experience. And um, a lot of people were kind of put off by the title Lousy. Um, and that, so my wife and I sat down and we tried to figure out how we might be able to soften it a little bit. And so... The film, I think, in all honesty, is about the love that my parents maintained throughout their dementia. And that's why I called it Love in the Time of Dementia. Um, and I will say that as weird and as awful and as distorted and as chaotic as their lives were, there was something very pure about their core identity that remained even while they had dementia. Uh, my father was always very optimistic, and my mother was always a control freak, and my father was much more able to accept his diminished circumstances and enjoy things like a hot shave that he could enjoy and let go of the things that he couldn't enjoy anymore. My mother was never able to let go of any of that. She was aware that she couldn't do stuff, and she was furious about it. Yeah, you know, you talk about Dementia and dementia care. It is not rainbows, unicorns, and glitter. It mm -mm. is anything but. And it's so, an educational process for all of us who are involved in it. Yes. The children, the spouses, the parents. Um, it absolutely is. What caught my eye is a meditation on youth and aging. And that's a process that we all go through. Yeah. I mean... You know, you can't help but imagine for yourself, you know, where am I going to be if I am 90 years old um, and what holds and what doesn't hold? I mean, the things that my parents were so meaningful to my parents in certain ways, um, they were art collectors and, you know, the, and, and those things dropped away very quickly. They could, you know, you could care less. The things that my mother had this teak furniture and she every week would oil it and pro, you know, she took care of these things and these things meant nothing to her at the end of her life. And yet I guess I was, it made me think about, you know, what do we hold for ourselves? Um, and what, what is meaningful when you're 20 or 50 and 90? So I guess that's, what I was thinking about when I thought of it as a meditation about uh, youth and aging. It's very thoughtful or thought provoking. Absolutely. When somebody looks at this piece that, you know, you created out of love and respect for your parents and to educate other people, 
Um, is there an underlying message that you want them to take? You know, say, for instance, in Confessions of an Imperfect Caregiver, because so often during the journey, I felt like I wasn't doing enough or as I was failing somehow, but eventually came to the conclusion that you don't have to get it right every day in order to be doing a good job. That was, I guess, my happy ending, for lack of a better word. Um, that was my message. You know, I think what I wanted people to see, I mean, I think that a lot of people think of dementia as kind of like goofy old people that lose their keys. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, even at the end of their lives, I mean, we would walk them around the block in their neighborhood and people would kind of look at my brother or me as we wandered, you know, as they hobbled around on their walkers and they would hold hands with each other and they would kind of smile that there's a Yiddish expression to kvel, to be very happy in someone else's experience. Um, and they would kvel about, as they watched my brother and I walking my parents around and they would, oh, it's so sweet and it's so wonderful what you're doing. And um, it would make them feel super happy. And that's great. And it was appropriate that they f responded that way. But I wanted with this film to say, you know, it's not easy. It's not pretty, but they're real people. I have a neighbor here in town who uh, I used to come back, you know, kicking and screaming about, I saw my parents and all this terrible stuff happened. And they would look at me and they'd say, your dad is 95 years old. He's lived a full life. Why don't you just let it go? No, you can't. And you know, he's a 40-year-old guy. And honestly, my parents sometimes, I mean, they when they were younger and they would see people that were in terrible shape, they would say, if I ever get like that, just shoot me. No, you can't. And I know they were joking, but they also sort of weren't joking. And I guess I was thinking like that with a lot of people would say that to me while we were taking care of them. I'm like, you know, just, you mm -hmm. know, if you, uh, if I remember like that, just shoot me. And Honestly, as we thought about, as my parents declined and I kept thinking, okay, if I was going to do that, if I was going to follow their rule and say, just shoot them, would it be today? And it's like, okay, well, they can't really take care of themselves in the bathroom and they can't really get themselves dressed, but they can enjoy a hot shave. They can enjoy a, um, an an, a, an ice cream or a chocolate cake. They, there's parts of their life that they can enjoy. My mother would, was singing, you know, with, with the Frank Sinatra songs. She knew every lyric, even though she didn't know what her own name was sometimes. Anyway, you, you know, what, what would be that moment when you would cut it off and say, okay, your life is so crappy now, it's not worth living. And there isn't a point. And as horrible and as, as wretched as their situation was, there was always something that like, okay, it's terrible, but you wouldn't end it. And they wouldn't have wanted to end it. I guess, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's a message. <laughs> it, yes. It is. It's a wonderful message. And I like the question that you asked yourself and to remind people to ask that. Because we've all been really sick at some point in our lives when we just felt we were so miserable, but we didn't want to end it. And there's still parts of us in there, like you said, enjoying the shave. Um, for me, bring me a bowl of ice cream and I'm going to perk right up. Those kind of things. 
or the scent of my husband's neck. Uh, you know, I always said that soothes me. Of course. <laughs> yeah. I'll have some too. <laughs> Those kind of things, they stay with us. And, and that is a wonderful message. And that that is a wonderful thing to share. I mean, it's funny. I, I People see things in that film that I, I didn't expect them to necessarily recognize. Another neighbor of mine had parents with dementia. And he watched the film. And at one point, my parents started yelling at each other, like really nasty. Uh, my father was, you're a liar. You've always wanted things from me and just lit into it. And my neighbor saw that and he said, I was so, it made me so happy when I saw that because my parents were fighting with each other at the end and they had dementia. And I always worried that maybe there was something about their relationship that I never understood, that secretly they didn't like each other, that there was something going on that I didn't notice and that I thought they loved each other, but that maybe they didn't really love each other. And when I saw your parents doing the exact same thing that my parents were doing, I realized it was the dementia and not some unnoticed hostility between them. So that, I think, is something that the honesty of the film allows people to see things that they might not have necessarily noticed themselves. And that's the key that caregivers need to keep in mind. It's the disease. It's not the individual. That person you knew your whole life is still that person. This is a disease, a devastating brain disease. And it causes all kinds of things to happen inside the brain. And that could be something that they saw on a TV show. And it just triggered something there. The key, I think, to all of this is it's the disease, it's not the person. That person is the same. Now, we also have to face the fact that dealing with that aspect of the disease is incredibly difficult to deal with. Oh, yeah. And that's where looking at your film and reading one of the number of, of books about people who are caring for family with, with dementia to understand. Knowing it's the disease doesn't make it easy. <laughs> no. No. And in fact, you can be, I mean, I remember both my brother and I, and you know, this is, speaks to your book and your theme of um, you're never going to be a perfect caregiver. I mean, my mother, because she's my mother, she knew how to press my buttons. <laughs> and um so she would say things out of anger or frustration, mm -hmm. largely, sometimes she'd be frightened. She'd be terrified that, you know, she couldn't walk, she couldn't take care of herself, and she knew she was dependent. And so she would say things that would really upset my brother or I, mm -hmm. and we would sometimes respond the way one would respond as an angry adolescent of like, mom, cut it out. <laughs> and then you just, and then you think to yourself, like, you know, mom is not able to, she's not able to respond the way that, that she used to. Mm -hmm. And so, but you know, you shouldn't lose it. But you do. And you do lose it. And then you think to yourself, oh, I should never have done that. Then you have the guilt. Yeah, you feel awful. Frank, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and our listeners. Well, thanks for having me. It's so nice to talk to you guys. Well, you can talk to us anytime you want. Just give us a call. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for your honesty in your film and in, in talking about your parents. Because as we said in the beginning, people need to learn from us what it's really like. Because so many of us walk into it not knowing what to expect. For sure. Again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Back at you. Well, I have to say, I will not forget ever. If I was going to shoot you, would this be the day? And the answer will always be no. <laughs> okay. I'm cool with that. That would hurt. <laughs> <laughs> you can find more information about Frank and links to his website on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes and post a review. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Here you meet interesting folks, enjoy boozy banter, and learn how to make craft cocktails from a master. And if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights from dramas to comedies and all those in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows as your review helps our show reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company.